Three of her four children did not live to adulthood, and her husband was assassinated while he held her hand. If anyone ever deserved to be troubled, it was the wife of the 16th president. James Cornelius, curator of the Lincoln Collection at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield, Illinois, said simply, she had the most tragic public life in American history. This is the story of the woman who once said, I wish I could forget myself. This is the story of Mary Ann Todd Lincoln. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. Any of our previous first ladies that we have had over the course of this nation's history, well, they would tell you that their role was a most challenging one. To select a few that held that title before 1861, the wife of John Adams, Abigail Smith Adams, was harshly criticized for allegedly dominating her husband, John. James Madison's other half, Dolly Payne Todd Madison, was attacked for being too flirtatious and thought crude for her use of snuff. According to her detractors, Elizabeth Courtright Monroe, the wife of James Monroe, was too haughty. Louisa Catherine Johnson Adams, wife of John Quincy Adams, was criticized for being too partisan, too opinionated. James Knox Polk's wife, Sarah Childress Polk, was attacked for her looks. Margaret McCall Smith Taylor, the wife of old rough-and-ready Zachary Taylor, was thought too rough, too Western. That brings us to the 16th President's First Lady, Mary Ann Todd Lincoln. Molly to some, to others, Hellcat. When she came into this world, a Sunday, December the 13th, 1818, she was the third and youngest daughter of Robert Smith and Eliza Parker Todd. Born in Lexington, Kentucky, her parents chose Mary Ann to honor her mother's only sister. Early on, events began to mold her adult years. At about the time she turned one, Mary Ann was abruptly weaned when a little brother was born. Another brother was born when Mary Ann was four, but sadly, he soon died. It was her first physical loss. Shortly thereafter, a sister, Anne, was born. With an Anne now in the family, at five, Mary Ann was now called Mary Todd to cut down on confusion with her younger sister. To Mary, another loss, this time her own name. For that, she resented her younger sister. At six and a half, more scars when her mother passed. At seven, more parental alienation. Her father remarried to Elizabeth Betsy Humphreys, and with his gain, Mary Todd lost something, her father's attention. His second marriage spawned nine more children, so Mary Todd was one of 13 
Her father, busy. Her stepmother, unfriendly. Perhaps both conditions precipitated what happened when she was almost nine. Mary Todd was sent to a female academy. For girls in her day, yes, an opportunity. But she interpreted it as being orphaned. In the meantime, her family in 1832 moved to an elegant 14-room house at 578 West Main Street in Lexington. There, the Todd family had one slave per family member. Then her oldest sister and the one closest to her, Elizabeth, married and moved to Illinois. More alienation. At school and away from her family, her dearest sister, absent, Mary felt isolated. Result, an insatiable lust for notoriety. Taken together, trouble for a woman rendered insecure by family abandonments. She constantly denied this desire for attention, but psychologically, she craved it. During her formative years, the enslaved Mammy Sally was her most constant adult presence. It was she that taught Mary Todd that the dead could return to comfort those left behind. As a young lady, she was pretty, plump, with ruddy cheeks, blue eyes, long lashes. She danced well and was an excellent conversationalist, according to some, perhaps too much so for a proper southern belle. To win attention from her father, she immersed herself in politics. She could be picky. When peeved, she mimicked others, and that cost her friends. In 1837, she, now 18, moved to Springfield, Illinois, where two of her older sisters lived. The move did not go well, so she returned home in the fall of that same year. Yet, she returned to Springfield in June of 1839 when yet another sister married and took up residence there. Her sister, Elizabeth, took her in. And so it would be that Mary Todd would remain in Springfield for the next 22 years. Among the 2,200 that lived there, there was cousin John Todd Stewart's new law partner. Arrived from nearby New Salem, A. Lincoln had moved to Springfield in April of 1837. He was lonely. Mary Todd was not and in her many associations, she was known to be a handful. As one put it, Mary could make a bishop forget his prayers. We believe the two were made aware of one another sometime in 1839. Though there was some interest, Mary continued to see others. One was attorney and state legislator Edwin Webb, and another was five foot four and at the time, 90-pound Stephen A. Douglas. Mary knew what she wanted. She wanted, as she put it, a good man with a hand for position, fame, and power. And how ironic. She wanted someone who would take her to the theater. Sometime in 1840, the friendship between Mary and Mr. Lincoln evolved into courtship and then wooing. For two years, her sister Elizabeth tried to break them up. She thought Lincoln primitive. It didn't help when once he was heard to exclaim at a gathering, Oh, boys, how clean these girls look. The two did indeed seem worlds apart. 
Mary Todd was aristocratic. Lincoln was plebeian. She was fashionable. He was rustic, scruffy. She was a ruddy pine knot with periodic exuberances of flesh. He, long and lanky. To quote Lincoln, he was the long and she the short of it. She was a talker. He listened. She was a dancer. He wanted to dance with her in the worst way, as she put it. And according to Mary Todd, he did in the worst way. She would use theatrics to get attention. He withdrew. She was quick to anger, to be vindictive. He was given to melancholy. She was on ill terms with many. Lincoln was liked by almost everyone. She held grudges, and as collected injustices mounted, she rehearsed her anger. For example, New Year's Day, 1841. Lincoln was late for a party they planned to attend together. Mary Todd went ahead. He arrived late to find her flirting with the attorney Edwin Webb. Angry, he ended the relationship and challenged Mary Todd, quipped, go and never come back. Lincoln later called it the fatal first. A state legislature at the time, he was so distraught, he missed six straight days of the Illinois legislature. He was so devastated, a friend removed his razor. Sadly, he left for Louisville on business, but the absence was beneficial. It allowed Mary Todd to see beyond his roughness. She found out she missed him. Advocates for the two brought them back together, and marriage soon followed. They wed one rainy night, November the 4th, 1842, oddly enough in the home of her sister Elizabeth, who had done so much to try to keep them apart. His ring to her was inscribed with the words, Love is eternal. Although about 30 friends and relatives were there, both sets of parents were absent. Molly and Mr. Lincoln began their married life at a boarding house that cost them $8 a week. His legal duties meant circuit riding, and that took him away for weeks at a time. However, that did not hinder their plans for the future. Mary Todd was immediately delicate, as they put it, or as the saying went, she was in the family way. On August the 1st, 1843, nine months minus three days after their wedding, Robert Todd Lincoln was born. He was named for Mary Todd's father. Mr. Lincoln had little input in the decision. In fact, she would name all their children. She also nursed every child she had for as long as two years. A growing family needed greater quarters, so in May of 1844, the Lincolns moved to the corner of 8th and Jackson in Springfield. They paid $1,200 for what was at the time a one-story, five-room house. In the summer of 1856, a second floor was completed at a cost of $1,300. From day one, the two had separate bedrooms. And from day one, Mary Todd ruled the house. In March of 1846, Edward Baker Lincoln was born. It was noted that Mary was a caring mother, although many thought she and Mr. Lincoln were far too lenient with their children. Some even called them brats. 
Edward or Eddie's time in this world was sadly short. He died February the 1st, 1850, after 52 days of pulmonary tuberculosis. Only the summer before, Mary Todd had lost her father to cholera. Two deaths made her distraught and made her angry. She refused to accept the reality of the situation, but in December of 1850, there was a new child, William Wallace Lincoln, and it brought her a renewed sense of reality and responsibility. He was named for Mary Todd's brother-in-law. And then in April of 1853, Thomas was born. Tad, he was called, short for Tadpole. At 16, the eldest Robert left for Harvard, despite failing 15 of 16 entrance exams. However, to improve his academic standing, he did spend a year at Exeter. Meanwhile, Lincoln rode the 8th Illinois Circuit. Some 600 of their letters survive. From them, we know she pushed him politically. If one knocked on their front door, her yell would descend from the second floor, business or politics? In 1846, Mr. Lincoln was elected as a Whig to Congress, and Mary Todd was intent on going. Of 239 congressmen at that time, only 73 wives accompanied their husbands, and by God, Mary Todd Lincoln was going to be one of them. Her three boys, too. They stayed at a boarding house where the Library of Congress stands today. There, Mr. Lincoln drew attention when he opposed the Mexican War. He asked for the exact spot, in his words, where American blood had been shed on American soil. After the war, his opponents called him Spotty Lincoln. That may have contributed to his failure to be re-elected. Mary also may have contributed to this. You see, she linked her husband's supporters to friendship. If you failed in one, you failed in the other. She was ecstatic when her husband's career was rejuvenated in 1856. At the Republican convention that year, he received 110 votes for the vice presidency. Though not nominated, in 1858 he chose to ride that wave of notoriety by running against a rival, Stephen A. Douglas, for the United States Senate. Mr. Lincoln made 63 speeches from August the 12th to October the 30th, 1858, and seven of them during their famous head-to-head running debate. Despite all the stumping, the state Senate of Illinois voted 52-46. to 46 in favor of the five-foot-four judge. Exhausted and disappointed, Abraham and Mary lived with the result, the result defeat. Down in spirit, Mary had an interesting answer when coping with personal or political defeat. She would shop. Two years later, that activity slowed, we must presume, for Mr. Lincoln was nominated for the presidency by his Republican Party. Unlike previous wives of presidential candidates, Mary, to no one's surprise, was unique. She was going to be involved. So much so that when the Republicans carried Pennsylvania, her elated husband said, Mary, Mary, we are elected. She was elated. But with the victory, she lost something. 
she soon learned that she no longer held the same preeminence in her husband's ear. For him, near civil war, it was a dangerous time. Letters arrived with skull and crossbones. As for Mary, a head-turning time for her level of participation as a first lady was without precedent. Earlier, William Henry Harrison's wife, Anna, opposed her husband's career. The wife of Zachary Taylor, Margaret, reluctantly brought herself and her corncob pipe to Washington City. Millard Fillmore's Abigail and Sarah, wife of James Knox Polk, did not look forward to First Lady social duties and both despised ceremonial entertainment. Jane Pierce, the wife of Franklin, despised it all so much she voluntarily declared herself an invalid. Not Mary Todd Lincoln. It began March the 4th, 1861, when 30,000 braved a raw and windy inaugural day. Afterward, there was the ball. Mary Todd entered on the arm of Stephen A. Douglas. She planned to be visible, and she needed the trappings to do it in style. The executive mansion was in great need of repair, and Mary Todd was just the lady to revitalize it. To refurbish the 31-room mansion, she pushed for and received a four-year allowance, which totaled $20,000. Eleven trips were made just to buy the furnishings. Chinese and French wallpaper accounted for over one-half the financial allotment. The $20,000 ran out in less than a year. Not deterred in the least, she mastered the art of shifting allocations. The executive mansion was just a start. As first lady, she had to dress properly, to properly reflect position, power. She shocked many by choosing dresses that bared her arms and neck. She did so because she wanted to show off her expensive jewelry. She loved pearls. She loved jasmine. Often she weaved flowers into her hair. Some thought her a garden in motion. By early 1862, she had 16 new dresses and hefty bills, and she looked for ways to have somebody else pay for them all. She had an interesting shopping strategy. The more she owed someone, the more she shopped with the same merchant to keep the bill from being called in. She could be brutal if one failed to meet her shopping desires. Once, a merchant did not have matching lavender ribbon for one of her bonnets. She demanded that a Mrs. Taft return her purchased bonnet that did have the right color ribbon. She refused to wear browns, grays, or black. She preferred canary, magenta, bold blue. Many were appalled. They thought that during a time of civil war, she should be frugal, understated. And out west, people thought, how dare she bear her shoulders? After one gathering, one lady blurted, she had her bosom on exhibition, a flower pot on her head. Through it all, her husband was well trained. Mr. Lincoln always showered her with compliments. One night, she wore a dress with a low neckline. 
Mr. Lincoln quipped, Our cat has a long tail tonight. If some of that tail was nearer the head, it would be in better style. Because of her, the parties could become battles. For the first diplomatic dinner, which the Secretary of State traditionally hosted, Mary Todd debated, shouted, pouted, and finally won the right to host it. And after the gathering, she sent the $900 bill for a New York caterer to the Secretary of State, William Seward. Seward and his staff simply called her the Hellcat. And she loved having her image captured. Almost all were made by the famous photographer Matthew Brady. He made many images of her. Few she kept. Those not selected, she demanded they be destroyed. Her vanity made her the perfect accomplice for patronage. Many gave her gifts, hoping for favor with the president, and she would indeed try to sway her husband's decision-making. This caused nasty arguments. Once, she pushed to get a relative a sutlership. No-nonsense, Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's Secretary of War, took her note, tore it up, and then marched to the executive mansion to berate her. By January of 1862, she had redecorated the presidential residence, had modified presidential entertaining, had outfitted herself like a queen, and had become the patronage maven. Now, in her defense, she also had reviewed troops, and she had visited countless hospitals. Still, many ridiculed her behavior, and it certainly did not help that she had three half-brothers in Confederate service. One who loved to entertain, on February the 5th, 1862, the Lincolns threw a party to restore sagging morale. A composer penned the Mary Lincoln Polka for the gathering. 500 guests were invited, and a lavish meal was served from midnight to 3 a.m. It cost the Lincolns $1,000, but for Mary, a success, because it was critiqued a success. Yet, upstairs, her son, young Willie, was running a high fever. During the party, both excused themselves to spend time with their 11-year-old. Two weeks, one day later, the 20th, he died at 5.30 a.m. A grieved Mr. Lincoln said he was too good for this earth. We believe it was typhoid fever. He was Mary Todd's favorite. Laid out in the green room, it was a room she refused to enter. There was another, the second-floor guest room, where he died. Despite power and attention, once again abandoned. Her mother, brother, father, stepmother, and now a second son. She stayed in bed for three weeks. Her grief was such that the story goes that Mr. Lincoln finally led her to a window, parted the curtains, and said, Mother, do you see that large white building on the hill yonder? Try and control your grief, or it will drive you mad, and we may have to send you there. No question, Lincoln himself was also terribly affected. Every Thursday, he locked himself in Willie's room to reflect. 
Mary Todd went into high mourning for a year, although the social manual called for six months. And finally, she graduated to the next stage of mourning. Black gave way to lavender, gray, then somber purple. For her loss, she railed against God's injustice. She canceled summer concerts, and she began to see spiritualists. After all, Mammy Sally had told her the departed could return, and Queen Victoria sought their aid. We believe there were as many as eight seances in the executive mansion. There was more grief when, two months after Willie's death, her Confederate half-brother Sam was killed. There would be more grief. Her half-brother David, mortally wounded at Vicksburg. Her half-brother Alec, who died in the fall of 1863. And at Chickamauga, her younger half-sister's husband, Confederate Brigadier General Benjamin Hardin Helm, was killed. These losses affected not only Mary Todd's stability, but her marriage. It was different. Though grief brought them together, their relationship became more businesslike, less passionate. In the election year of 1864, more stress when rumors surfaced that the Democrats were going to expose her spending. Despite the threat, Mr. Lincoln was reelected. Mary Todd was elated, yet wary, for it always seemed that bad fortune followed good. At the second inaugural ball, more of her maddening behavior. She chose Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner to escort her into the grand ballroom. She refused to allow Mr. Lincoln to have an escort. An example of her jealousy, which could be monstrous. City Point, near Petersburg, Virginia, March 24, 1865. She was late for a military review. When she finally arrived, she saw her husband on horseback conducting the review and Major General E.O.C. Ord's wife mounted and beside him. Approaching the party in a rage, she leaped from the ambulance wagon that conveyed her and physically attacked the commander-in-chief in front of the Army of the Potomac's High Command. It was dreadfully painful to watch. Yet she believed her public display of anger was justified for her public embarrassment and justified soon thereafter to demand that Orb be relieved of his command. Fortunately, he was not. And the end of the war was near. As we all know, so was her time together with her husband. To celebrate Lee's surrender at Appomattox, Mrs. Lincoln wanted to go to Ford's Theater, where the 1,000th presentation of Our American Cousin was featured. The Grants were invited, but they were the first of three couples and nine individuals who could not or would not attend. Socialite Clara Harris and her fiancé, Major Henry Rathbone, accepted party of four's vantage was from boxes seven and eight. It was there around 10:15 that evening, April 14, 1865, 
that Mary Todd Lincoln's fragile world was shattered. After Booth's fatal shot, she spent nine agonizing hours waiting for her husband to die. Once every hour, she left the front parlor of the Peterson house, where the president had been taken, made her way to the small room where her husband was slipping away, went to him and tried to kiss him into consciousness. The kisses eventually gave way to overpowering emotion, and after one scream, Edwin Stanton stated firmly, Keep that woman out of here. When Vice President Andrew Johnson tried to enter the room, he was asked to leave. She hated him and made it clear that the sight of him, the new president, disturbed her greatly. She never got over the night of April 14th, 15th, and only once over the next 17 years wore anything that was not mourning apparel. And that was only for her son's Tad's birthday. For the next 40 days after Mr. Lincoln's death, she remained in bed, racked with migraines and suffering from weak limbs, swollen eyes, back pain, and congestion. To put things in perspective, First Lady Jackie Kennedy remained in the White House for 10 days after John Fitzgerald Kennedy's assassination. Mary Todd Lincoln lingered for 40. She left at the very hour of the planned Grand Military Review, May 23rd, in Washington City. As for Lincoln's final resting place, she argued with the Lincoln Monument Association. With an, alas, all is over with me, she moved to Chicago, where she was consumed by the assassination. It became her daily crucifixion. Then, more grim reality. No longer the First Lady, merchants called in her debts estimated at $10,000. To meet them, she began writing what one called begging letters and lobbied Congress for her husband's prorated second-term salary. She received $22,025. Mr. Lincoln's estate was valued at $85,000, but he had left no will. Mr. Lincoln's lifelong friend, her personal enemy, David Davis, handled the estate and decided her share would be one-third. Another of Lincoln's lifelong friends, William Herndon, dropped another bomb November the 16th, 1866, when in an address he stated that Anne Rutledge of New Salem was his friend's only love. And he added that, quote, for the last 23 years, Mr. Lincoln had no joy. And that he lived in, again, Herndon's words, domestic hell. To raise money, on September the 16th, 1867, she traveled to New York City to hopefully sell her wardrobe in a public showing. One newspaper called it Mrs. Lincoln's Secondhand Clothing Sale. At its entrance was a book that asked for pledges. One visitor pledged $75. Rather than sign his name, he wrote, a member of the committee to save us from national disgrace. Little was sold. 
little was pledged. Many thought the close tainted, originally accepted to help buy political favor. Her reaction? If no one valued her clothes, no one valued her. Her critics merciless. They called her a mercenary prostitute. In November of 1867, she did receive $36,000 from the estate. The timing of that award doomed, however, any more potential sales. She believed her oldest son, Robert, deliberately timed the decision to sabotage her attempts to make money. No question, he believed his mother could not handle money, and he was frankly embarrassed that she sought the use of spiritualists. More attacks came. In the spring of 1868, an associate that had not been paid in some time, Mary Todd Lincoln's seamstress Elizabeth Keckley, published a tell-all book. And behind the scenes, 30 years a slave and four years in the White House, Keckley wrote of behavior that was most unflattering to the former first lady. Mary immediately renounced their friendship and fed up with it all, made plans to leave, as she put it, this ungrateful republic. In October of 1869, she left with 15-year-old Tad. When they boarded the city of Baltimore, no one saw them off. They traveled to Frankfurt, Germany, where for the next two years, a 51-year-old lady told others she was 46. She traveled to spas while pushing Charles Sumner back in the States to work on a congressional pension for her. He was successful. In May of 1870, the House voted her a $3,000 annual pension. To put that amount in perspective, a common soldier received $151.80 a year. An officer, only $600 a year. On July the 14th, 1870, and after much debate, the Senate, in strictly a partisan vote, agreed to give her the largest individual annuity ever granted to an American citizen. Eventually, she longed for home and returned to the States in May of 1871. Back in Chicago, she and Tad lived with son Robert and his wife. That arrangement two strong-willed women in the same house quickly soured. And tragedy struck again. Tad, now 18, had caught a cold on the trip back. It worsened. He died of pleurisy at 7.30 in the morning, July 15, 1871, the day after the Senate okayed her pension. To Mary Todd, it all made sense. Again, good fortune than disaster. And coincidentally, her ill-fated fortune seemed to infect the whole city, for on October the 8th, 1871, there was the great and tragic Chicago fire. 2,100 acres scorched, nearly 200 dead. Her days were spent with constant trips to spas, encounters with spiritualists, and suffering through anniversary panics. For example, the death of her firstborn, the passing of Willie, her husband's assassination, the death of Tad, and the blows continued. 
Lincoln's former law partner, William Herndon, published a biography about this time. In it, Herndon questioned Lincoln's legitimate birth and his religious conviction. He also portrayed Mary as a lying madwoman. As we noted earlier, she shopped when she felt low. At this point in her life, she shopped often. When she did, she bought multiples of the same articles and always haggled with the merchant over price. Her seemingly erratic behavior was such that on May the 19th, 1875, she was visited by a party of men. One was Leonard Sweat, the Chicago lawyer, who 15 years earlier nominated her husband for president. They took her to the Cook County Courthouse to answer a charge of lunacy. Her son Robert had sworn out the warrant. Under oath, he testified, I have no doubt my mother is insane. She has long been a source of great anxiety to me. She has no home, and referencing her shopping sprees, he continued, no reason to make these purchases. Her accusers documented grief, the sale of old clothes, eccentric buying and behavior. An all-male jury took less than ten minutes and agreed. The former First Lady of the United States was sent to Batavia, Illinois the next day where she was committed to the Bellevue Place Sanatorium. There, she was confined on the second floor in a 12 by 21 foot room. Three months and three weeks later, she was released to the general population of the sanatorium. Her release from confinement angered her son, Robert. He hired people to watch her and using the courts, he gained legal control of her money. Finally, two individuals came to her assistance, Judge James B. and Myra Bradwell. Robert, however, blocked not only their legal efforts, but his Aunt Elizabeth's attempt to have her sister live with her. Throwing up his hands, he left for a summer vacation at Rye Beach, New York. While away, the Bradwells threatened a writ of habeas corpus to produce Mrs. Lincoln. That helped to outmaneuver Robert, and on September the 11th, 1875, his mother was released. Mary went to her sister Elizabeth's in Springfield, Illinois. Though released, Robert continued to believe his mother insane and wanted another court appearance. This time, Mary wanted it, too. On June the 15th, 1876, the court reversed its stand. Mary Todd Lincoln was, in their words, restored to reason and capable to manage and control her estate. Back in control of her money and life, she wrote her oldest son. There was no deer before his name. In her letter, she wanted returned everything she had ever given to him. She, in return, sent back gifts he had given her. The man, her eldest, the one she called a monster of mankind's son, returned some of what she asked. She, in turn, returned everything he had given her. It wasn't much, for honestly, she had little from him anyway. The gift-giving and affection had always been one-sided. She never forgave him. 
Now free, she traveled to Lexington, Kentucky, then Philadelphia for the nation's centennial. On October the 1st, 1876, she crossed the Atlantic once again and returned to southwestern France. Finally, back in Lexington, people found her withdrawn. One commented that he believed her will to live came solely from absolute hate she held for her son. Her sister Elizabeth pleaded with Robert to write her, but he refused. In the autumn of 1880, Mary went yet again to stay with Elizabeth in Springfield. The former First Lady was feeble, half-paralyzed, and suffered from cataracts. Her oldest son, Robert, relented, paid her one final visit. It was a quick one. There was no reconciliation, but an event demonstrated she still had some fire. Mary learned that Mrs. James Garfield, wife of the gun-downed 20th president, was to receive a $5,000 a year pension. Feeble, but not finished by any account, she, at 63 years of age, asked for $15,000. She never collected a cent. Six months later, in 1882, on yet another painful anniversary, the 11th of Tad's passing, she collapsed. The next morning, July the 16th, in the same house in which she was married, a stroke took her. Her tortured existence ended. Three days later, to honor her passing, the mayor of Springfield declared a holiday. Stores closed and thousands lined the streets. In the obituaries that followed, the phrase, respected wife, was repeated. She would have liked that. Like her husband, she left no will. The object of her hatred, Robert, inherited her estate two years later, $84,035 and 64 filled trunks. He had her money and her belongings. But this time, she had something far more important, something that could not be measured in dollars and cents. There, at Oak Ridge Cemetery, where her loved ones rested, Mary Ann Todd Lincoln, repeatedly abandoned in life, would in death have what she cherished the most. Never again would she be separated, not from her husband not from three of her four sons. This time, and for all eternity, Marianne Todd Lincoln would be surrounded by family. When next we gather, we'll return to the Western Theater, to the fall of 1863. In a two-part series, we'll slip into the headquarters of Confederate General Braxton Bragg, Union Major Generals William Rosecrans and U.S. Grant, and we'll fall in with their armies as they shift, slide, and collide at Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge, landmarks that figured prominently in the Battle of Chattanooga. I hope you'll join us. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. <laughs>